from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Friends, good morning. My name is Tony Sundermeyer, one of the pastors here at First Presbyterian Church. It's good to be in worship with you uh, this morning on this first Sunday of February on this Lord's Day that also happens to be the day the Atlanta Falcons will break the long-suffering streak these fans have had to deal with. And, and, Cholamon. <laughs> that was great. That was unplanned. That was unplanned. Um, today's liturgical co- co- color is, in fact, green, but I thought it would be appropriate to wear red and black today, so that's why I put the, uh, it is kind of a Holy Spirit kind of day, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, it is good to be in worship with you this morning. A special welcome again to those who are with us for the first time, whether you're in the room or you're watching live uh, on live stream, we're glad to be together. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand and move about the sanctuary, find a face you don't recognize. Let's welcome one another to First Presbyterian Church. Turn with me in your pew Bible to Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 13, which can be found on page 157 in the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God for all the days of your life and keep his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away. 
When you lie down and when you rise, bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land that he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you a land with fine, large cities that you did not build, houses filled with all sorts of goods that you did not fill, hewn cisterns that you did not hew, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you have eaten your fill, take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord your, the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name alone you shall swear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our reading continues with Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, found on page 182 of your Pew Bible's New Testament. Let us continue to listen for the word of the Lord. Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learn Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lust, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This too is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In the late 1950s, Leon Festinger, an American social psychologist, introduced to the world the theory of cognitive dissonance. The theory simply states that human beings prefer and pursue consistency in how we integrate and how we process information. You see, when a person is exposed to an experience or information that is inconsistent with their pre-existing beliefs or their pre-existing behavior, cognitive dissonance occurs. Here's an example. Say there's a woman, what we'll call her Ruth in this story, and from a very early age, like early high school, Ruth knew she wanted to be an attorney. So she worked hard through high school to get into a pre-law program at a prestigious university. She sacrificed much during her college years. She sacrificed what we would think of as being sort of all the social advantages of a college experience, dates and meeting new friends and and going on trips with these new friends. She sacrificed all of it so she could be accepted for enrollment at one of the nation's top law schools. Her intensity only increased 
during law school as she single-mindedly focused on the goal of being hired by what she believed was the top law firm in the country. Ruth worked harder and harder day and night to finish top of her class. Sure enough, a few weeks before graduation, she was invited to join that esteemed firm that she had idolized. But when she started to work after graduation, when she showed up, even on day one, she quickly figured out that the firm was not what she thought it was. In fact, it was a miserable place to work. It was unfriendly and emotionally and and intellectually hostile. Her pre-existing belief that working at this firm would be totally worth the effort, that working at this particular firm, this, this firm above all other firms, would be worth the sacrifice that she put in the previous seven years, conflicted with her actual real-time experience of the place. That is what we call cognitive dissonance. Fessinger argued that because human beings prefer mental cohesion, we will try and do our best to alleviate the unease that's caused by such dissonance. In Ruth's case, she could quit, yes, she, she could quit the firm, but that would require her to live in a perpetual dissonance, knowing that her pre-existing beliefs and her experience of the firm were, in fact, incongruent. And so she'd always have to live with that. She'd have to live with that incongruence. She'd have to live with the dissonance of these seven years she thought would lead her to something when, in fact, it led her to something entirely different. Instead, Festinger argued, she is more likely, she may quit, but she is more likely to convince herself that the firm, in fact, is the most prestigious firm and the best firm for which anyone could work for. Ruth may, in fact, suppress her emotions. She will surround herself with people who avow the reputation of the firm. She will only expose herself to information and ideas that endorse the pre-existing belief Ruth carried with her on day one. That this firm is number one, no matter what her experience is telling her no matter what she sees day in and day out. The process of trying to alleviate cognitive dissonance is called selective exposure. Now, we may not be familiar with this term selective exposure, but, but as a practice, I'm sure we have all had run-ins with it. Selective exposure is when one affiliates and surrounds themselves with people and ideas that affirm what they already believe. That's why the political conservative is more likely to listen to Fox News or Rush Limbaugh, and it's why the political liberal is more likely to listen to MSNBC or Keith Oberman. It's why your Facebook feed miraculously promotes everything you already like. It may also be the case that selective exposure is at play when church folk are looking for a new church home. They might ask, does the preacher or the church's theology on this issue or that issue affirm what I already believe? 
I mean, how many times have we said to ourselves, or maybe out loud, maybe we've heard someone else say it, I didn't like the sermon today, and it is said because it counters a preconceived conviction that we bring to worship with us. Or, maybe more often, I didn't like the music today because it conflicts with a pre-existing conviction that we have of what constitutes for proper and good worship music. Or consider how many families and friendships even now are breaking apart over political opinions. I thought you believed the same thing I believed. Don't underestimate the power of cognitive dissonance and the remedy we're prone to pursue in this selective exposure. We will even go so far as to break from people we love, people we call friends. We'll leave churches that we have worshipped in for generations when they do not affirm what we already believe. We'll go find someone else or some other group that does. Because deep down, when it comes to politics, when it comes to religion, when it comes to social matters, we really do, deep down inside, prefer the echo chamber. That's at the heart of selective exposure. And while selective exposure does guarantee sort of a mental and emotional equilibrium, maybe even a mental and emotional peace, the problem with it is that it makes it impossible. It makes it impossible for someone to change for someone to grow, for someone to be transformed. In philosophy, it was Hegel, and it was his work, The Phenomenology of the Spirit, that introduced to the world this notion that something good, that something of value can come in the contradictory process when two opposing sides come together. He used this type of language. He said, on one side you have a thesis, and on the other side you have an antithesis. And instead of those two moving away from each other, when they come together and when they conflict and when they contest, they actually produce something transformative, something of value, something different the world has never seen. He called it a synthesis. Here's a very, very contextual example of this at work even today. When the Falcons hired their offensive coordinator, Kyle Shanahan, to run their offense, he brought a brand new system with him. A new system meant different formations needed to be learned. A new system meant different plays needed to be learned. A new system meant different terminology needed to be learned. But even greater than that, a new system made a whole new offensive philosophy needed to be learned. That was Kyle Shanahan. But you already had a quarterback in place. Matt Ryan is already there. He's operating under a completely different philosophy. He's operating under a completely different system. And it, and it has been well documented over the last several weeks and, and even years of the dissonance and the conflict and the challenge that Ryan and Shanahan had to get on the same page. We saw the results on the field last season when the Falcons won three, only three of their last 11 games. Now, if we use Hagel's lexicon here, we could say that, that Shanahan's pre-existing beliefs of what an offense should look like and what an offense should do, the thesis, came into direct conflict with how Matt Ryan understood his gifts and how he could best perform 
in an offense. And those two things conflicted. They came together. There was a contest between those two beliefs. But out of that conflict, out of that conflict came something good. It was hard. There was a a challenge, but out of that conflict came a synthesis that looks like an MVP for Ryan and both of them being on the verge of Super Bowl glory. Rise up. Now imagine this. Imagine if Shanahan sort of doubled down on his pre-existing beliefs and Ryan doubled down on his and they moved away from each other and they began to surround each other. Matt Ryan with some of the other players who who didn't quite want to move toward Shanahan's direction and then other players would be brought to Shanahan and other coaches and they would move away from each other. Maybe Shanahan would have even thought of not playing Matt Ryan. Think about the ways in which selective exposure would have invalidated this entire season. But it was through this conflict, through this antithesis and thesis coming together that this synthesis of success has taken place. Now a little Bible and theology. The Christian life is a life of transformation. It always has been. It's a life of transformation. It's not static, nor is it ever finished. It is never finished, as Rebecca's children's sermon reminds us. We're never done being Christian. As it says in one of our, four, one of our core values, rather, from the Lone Range Strategic Plan, the Christian life is a life of continual conversion. I love that phrase. It's a life of continual conversion where we are being actively shaped as disciples through God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. In the text from Ephesians, the the writer describes this life of transformation. The the writer describes this this continual conversion and does it through the language of renewal and, and through the metaphor of clothing oneself with a new self, doing away with the old self and putting on clothes of the new self But I want us to to notice, to be sure and notice, how conflict is actually at the heart of this transformation. There is a contest between the old self and the new self. The old self was alienated from God, and the new self reflects the likeness of God. As the writer says, in true righteousness and holiness... For me, there's a subtle way this text connects to the notions of cognitive dissonance and selective exposure. The reason is because Christians experience cognitive dissonance all the time. All the time. Right? I mean, just think about this text in Ephesians. Here they are, this church gathering in Ephesus, first century Christians, formed under the conviction, born into a world that said there is no higher expression of humanity than Roman citizenship. That there is no better way, rather, to be organized than to be rallied and organized around Greek intellectualism and its political legacies. In other words, they learned the way of this Hellenistic culture and its primacy above all other cultures. But this way, says the writer, is futile and ignorant and careless and impure. Strong words even for Twitter. 
The early Christians reading this would have had cognitive dissonance. The way of Christ is fundamentally different, they would learn. It is the antithesis of the thesis called the Roman Empire. So what is the Christian to do in this moment of cognitive dissonance? They could pursue a selective exposure. That's within their options. They could surround themselves with people who affirm the so-called Gentile way of life, that, that which is marked by the old self. Or, or they could live in the conflict. They could normalize the conflict. They could live in the tension of being in the world but not of the world. Live in the tension of putting on Christ in a culture that seeks to strip away any semblance of his lordship. Friends, I ask you this morning, are we not in such a moment of cognitive dissonance? Or perhaps it is and has always been the perpetual reality of Christians for the past two millennia. Maybe that is the normal that we are constantly experiencing dissonance for we have been born ourselves into a culture that preferences power over love, violence over peace, and idolatry over the worship of the one true God. The way of the world is not the way of Christ. It's not. And instead of seeking out a selective exposure that affirms the futility and the darkness and alienation and licentiousness and greed and impurity of our sinful nature and the sinful world, maybe we should expect to live in the conflict. Maybe we should expect to live in the dissonance that comes when the sinner that is you and me is confronted by the relentless and unmatched grace and love of our God. And God's mission to put the world to rights. Maybe the Christian life, if it is a life of transformation, is meant to be lived in the conflict, in the dissonance. I'll close with this. There should really be no, no other place where this conflict between the old and new self between the world and the kingdom of God is more apparent, more recognizable than within the context of worship. Do you follow me? I mean, not only is continual conversion one of our values under the headings of transformation, but so is worship. But not just any kind of worship, joyful worship. Gathering to give thanks and praise to our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. One of my professors and mentors at Princeton Seminary, Daryl Guter, talks about the purpose and the witness of public worship, about what we're actually doing right now in this hour as being a continuous encounter and a continuous celebration of Christ. And when we encounter and when we, we celebrate Christ... You know, what we're really doing is, is reaching back into this ancient word and in these ancient texts, even going back to a text that rooted the, the worship life and the faith life of the people of Israel that continues to root our faith today, like Deuteronomy 6.4 that reminds us that there is but one God and one Lord over all. We are reminded that there is no room in worship for selective exposure, for we will be thrust into conflict where the ways of the world and the ways of this Lord God square off each and every Sunday in a cosmic battle for the hearts and minds of us all. 
At some level, worship is the ultimate expression of cognitive dissonance. As unholy people encounter a holy God, worship is the context where, where a gracious and forgiving God engages sinful humanity with love. Worship is the time when the ways of the kingdom are affirmed in the face of the ways of this broken and idolatrous world. We might bring with us even to worship this morning feelings of dejection, purposeless, purposelessness, uh, feelings of being unloved or unwanted. And it's at worship where dissonance begins to bubble up, where we hear a different word, a good news word that says you are loved and accepted and valued and you have a place in my mission to put this world right. If we're going to be transformed, friends, if we're going to be transformed, then we have to remain in the conflict. We have to expose ourselves to the cognitive dissonance the gospel so often provokes. And so may we, as a church and as a people, be engaged by this holy other God in joyful worship, be engaged with this God that seeks to continually convert us into a transformed life, a life that looks like and feels like and sounds like the life of Christ. It's in his name that we make this prayer and this plea and all of God's people say, Amen.